For Cybercrime Radio, I'm Paul John Spaulding, GM of production at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today is Sean Fleury, Vice President of Cyber Risk Management Services at Kivu, which offers strategic guidance and fully managed 24 by 7 cybersecurity threat monitoring. Learn more about our sponsor at kivuconsulting.com. Sean, thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, it's a pleasure. Sean, AI has been red hot in the news, and an article from ZDNet details how Google expanded its bug bounty program to include vulnerabilities specific to AI. Tell us how cybercriminals are using AI and also maybe touch upon why Google has launched this initiative. Yeah, so let's talk about what companies are doing to integrate AI into security first, and then we'll look at the topic of what threat actors are doing. So if you look at the largest security vendors that are out there, whether we're talking about Google or Microsoft, Amazon from a cloud perspective, Palo Alto Networks, they are putting a lot of resources into integrating AI into the capabilities of the security software that each one of us uses day in and day out to secure our organizations. And as they integrate AI, just like with any software, there is a risk that vulnerabilities will be introduced in the development process of integrating that into the stack. And these companies, such as Google, in the article that was recently on your website, they are very interested in crowdsourcing the identification of bugs so that they can get in front of the fixing of those issues much quicker. Like if you look at Google, right? They have a very large staff, I am sure, internally that is focused on improving their software and looking for vulnerabilities. But by having a bug bounty program, they're able to use it as an extension of their team to have even more eyes looking at what they're doing from a security perspective. That's what they're doing. But if you look at what threat actors are doing, threat actors are also integrating artificial intelligence into their attacks. And what that looks like is could be something as simple as this. A threat actor could exploit a system, create a configuration file from that system or get a configuration file from that system, and then load it into the AI engine and tell the AI engine, hey, identify vulnerabilities that I can exploit to further compromise the network that this system resides on. And it is vastly accelerating the pace at which threat actors are able to target an organization and then from targeting, carry out their campaign of whatever they're looking to accomplish within that environment. I believe it was during the last podcast with Shane Sims, he mentioned the acceleration of the timeline we're seeing from initial access to the threat actor being able to get to whatever their goals are within the organization. Five, 10 years ago, average dwell time could be months in some cases. Now, I'm aware of one recent incident where the threat actor was able to gain a foothold, exfiltrate the data, and deploy the ransomware attack within the environment within about 13 hours, which is a vast acceleration of what we had previously seen. And I'm not saying that in this case it was or was not AI, but AI is going to even accelerate that further from a threat actor perspective. So what does that mean? 
it means that from a defensive posture perspective, you're going to have less and less time for your SOC or your analyst to be able to review alerts and then be able to come up with a solution for one, identifying the threat actors in your environment, and two, getting the threat actor out of the environment before they're able to cause harm to the organization. Yeah, it seems more and more critical that the way in which companies have defenses and build their defenses evolves with how quickly the technology evolves. So if you have a bug bounty, you can have people, ethical hackers basically come in and try to poke holes in what's happening. But I also do want to talk a bit about penetration testing because they're not two sides of the same coin. Perhaps that might be an inappropriate analogy, but they do relate in terms of how do companies begin to protect themselves? Because as you say, this is evolving so quickly. It's such a massive issue, top of everybody's mind here. So maybe you could share your thoughts a bit about just a defensive strategy in particular in regards to AI. Do you think penetration testing would be something valuable for these companies as well? Any tool that can be used for good can also be used for evil. That's just the reality of when a new tool is created, threat actors are going to look at it. And if they can leverage it as part of their attacks, they're going to do so. I am a big proponent of offensive security engagements, of which penetration testing, red teaming, purple teaming, web application assessments, secure code review to me, they all fall under that offensive security umbrella. I was talking to a good friend of mine the other day, and as part of a red team, he mimics the activities of a threat actor within the environment. And what he says is the AI is allowing him to do that much quicker and be able to look much more like the threat actors he's trying to emulate within the environment. I'm a big proponent of organizations having offensive security engagements of their environments, depending on the goals. It could be as simple as a external penetration test to see what vulnerabilities you as an organization may be from, from an attack surface, you may be able to be exploited against you. Or it can be something much more specific where like, like a purple team exercise where the goal is threat actor emulation or emulator to come in and really work with your defensive team, your SOC team to identify, hey, here's how you can improve your ability to detect activity with your environment. Here's how you can tune your preventative controls to prevent these type of attacks coming. And here's how you can tune your respond capabilities so that when a threat actor is identified in the environment, you're able to appropriately respond to what you're seeing at that moment in time. Well, Sean, one of my concerns is thinking about AI is these tech giants like Google, like Microsoft, they're entering this AI race, if you will. And they also have a lot of user data. That's part of their business, marketing. So, Sean, before we hopped on today, we were talking a bit about this article from PCMag that states, a Microsoft AI employee accidentally leaked 38 terabytes of data. Maybe you could break this down a bit more for us, Sean, and the implications of all these tech giants who do have a ton of our data, and then they are entering this AI race and maybe exposing that data in unknown ways, or in this case, from an insider. Yeah, I want to start by saying this is not a Microsoft issue, right? This is something we see organizations struggle with time and time again. So when we look at the that specific article as an example, a researcher incorrectly configured a cloud share 
which allowed more to be visible than was intended. And there's a lot encapsulated within that comment. But let's start with the AI side first. Organizations need to train AI in order for it to be effective. That requires a massive amount of data in order for the AI to be able to review that data, analyze that data, and over time evolve so that we're seeing the appropriate responses from the AI as it relates to whatever we're trying to do with that data. However, that data needs to be stored somewhere. And that data may or may not contain information that could be considered sensitive or private. Just depends on what you're trying to train the that AI to do. And the reality is misconfigurations are a one of the leading causes to breaches that we continue to see when we're responding to organizations that are having an incident. So whether it's as simple as a firewall being misconfigured, whether it's something like a cloud instance having excessive permissions for a role, it is something that every organization struggles with. And it is something that we work very closely with organizations to continue to evolve their processes and their technology to attempt to get in front of those type of issues. We'll be right back after a quick word from our sponsor. By the end of this commercial, multiple organizations across the world will be hacked by cyber criminals. Arm yourself with Kivu's cast of cyber crusaders and advanced cyber weapons. Reduce today's cyber risk with our full suite of cybersecurity services. From strategic guidance to fully managed 24 by 7 cybersecurity threat monitoring and hunting. And rest assured, Kivu's 24-7 incident response team based in the U.S. and U.K. moves fast to contain threats, reduce damage, and restore business operations. Since 2009, Kivu fights cybercrime and protects humanity. Go to kivuconsulting.com to learn more. That's K-I-V-U-consulting.com. And now back to the podcast. Well, there are ways as well that a company can try to defend itself after the fact or protect itself rather. And I'm referring to cyber insurance because that's something becoming increasingly popular in this field. And according to an article in the Wall Street Journal, Clorox has spent $25 million to respond to a suspected ransomware attack, and they are unsure if their cyber insurance will cover the cost. Now, the reason, Sean, that I want to bring this up is I'm curious if you think with the rise of AI, cyber insurance will have to compensate in some way. There might need to be more clear definitions about what they cover and what they don't. So any thoughts you have to share? Yeah, so I'm not going to touch directly on the Clorox incident, but their cost to respond is not something that is shocking to me. Over the last 10, 15 years, whether we look at the target breach, whether we look at the Equifax breach and the, the public reporting they've had as it relates to the cost of those breaches, the one thing to note is that $25 million may just be the cost of the response itself. It may not even include the cost of such things as credit monitoring for data that was impacted, right? Or regulatory fines or fees that may be issued in the future that could extend the cost of the breach, right? This is just the starting point. There could be additional costs coming for the true cost of the breach that we won't know for years and years and years. But from a cybersecurity insurance perspective, these breaches are not cheap to respond to. So what the cybersecurity insurance does provide the same with car insurance, right? That if you get in an accident, you're able to recover to the state of the 
car at the time the accident occurred. The same is true for an incident, right? When you have cybersecurity insurance, one of the key things is to return to operations. Now, the reality is a company needs to be aware of what is and what is not covered by their cybersecurity policy. So there's a lot of things that could be add-ons to a cybersecurity policy that if you do not include, could mean you're not covered for it. So the analogy is I live in the state of Florida. Florida has a problem with hurricanes at times, right? And you need to have a separate policy related to water damage than the core insurance policy, or you're not covered for damage that could be caused by rising water during a hurricane. The same could be true for your cybersecurity policy. So what I recommend for organizations is that they need to be doing a review of their cybersecurity policy, making sure they fully understand what is included, what is not included, and then making a business slash risk decision as to whether that policy that they have is sufficient to address the risks they're facing from a potential cybercrime event. Well, one of the things I did want to touch upon is liability. And I'm talking about specifically with company executives. I'm thinking back to SolarWinds and the Uber data breach. There were greater implications there for individuals at those companies. And with AI opening up a lot of new vectors, do you think the landscape will change in terms of how people are held accountable for potential cyber incidents? That's an interesting question. Look, if you look back at the Anthem breach, right? Regulators were very interested in how did Anthem respond? How were they protecting themselves before the breach? And how did they create plans to come out of the breach in a more secure state and mitigate the risk associated with what potentially contributed to it, right? With the solar winds one, it's the first one that I can recall where the CISO in this case may be held criminally liable for statements that they made prior to the breach occurring. And what the regulator in this case, and this is, these are my words, right? The regulator is saying is the CISO knew that there was a risk for this type of event to occur or should have known. They made statements that were not factually true on the face of them. And that that's why we're going to provide criminal charges. Now, one thing to note is this has to go through an entire process, right? Just because allegations or criminal charges have been made does not mean that ultimately the CISO is going to be held accountable, does not mean that the CISO even did anything wrong. That's why we have the court of law. That's why we're going to have likely a trial or there's they're going to come to some sort of agreement that says hey, here's what we're going to do instead of trying this court. And in a lot of cases, there is some plea agreement or some agreement that's made between a regulator and a company to address the concerns related to a breach. This is not going to slow down. I guess the, what, the phrase I would use is once the rabbit is out of the hat, it's really hard to put the rabbit back in the hat. And what I mean by that is once one regulator starts down this path, other regulators are going to be very interested to see, does this result in an improvement in security, security hygiene? Is this another tool that we should consider to make sure that those entities that are under our regulator authority are taking security seriously? 
So I'm going to be very interested over the next however long this lasts for six months, whatever it looks like, maybe longer to see the continued reporting that comes out about this. Now to your question specifically around AI, the thing to note is AI, just like a lot of technology that has come out over the last 20 years to secure an organization, it is not a magic bullet. It is going to be likely part of what organizations consider as part of a defense in-depth strategy. It's likely going to be incorporated into many of the defensive tools that you already have within your environment. As you look 6, 12, 18 months down the road, as Microsoft's and Palo Alto's and these other organizations continue to integrate these capabilities. So I don't know if it necessarily changes the liability or the risk. It's just an additional risk that CISOs, CIOs, board members need to be aware of and need to have in their sights from, is this a risk to our organization? One other thing before we move off the topic, if you organizationally have not addressed how your internal employees are leveraging AI like ChatGPT, you need to start considering the risks associated with it. For example, developers can go to ChatGPT or one of these other AI programs and say, find bugs in my code or help me code specific new language that I need in order to add this new feature. By using that AI model, though, your developers could be feeding the AI proprietary information or sensitive information. And that is just another risk area that you organizationally need to understand what risks am I taking on by my employees uploading this type of information to one of these AI enablers. Well, Sean, before we go, I did want to throw another news topic at you quickly, because as of the time of recording, it is something that just hit the news here. And this is according to Security Week. Black Hat Ransomware Group files an SEC complaint against Meridian Link over its failure to disclose an alleged data breach caused by the hackers. Sean, this is an incredibly complicated situation, so I don't think we have the time to do a, a whole deep dive, as we could probably do maybe a whole episode about this. But what do you think our listeners should know about this situation and maybe break it down a bit more for us? Very cheeky threat actor. In my mind, this is an extension of the extortion techniques we're already seeing threat actors utilize as part of the ransomware and extortion techniques that they're using against organization. So historically, if we look at these ransomware threat actor groups, in a vast majority of the cases, they were getting their paycheck by the organization paying a ransom to decrypt the systems that they had encrypted as part of the attack. What we found over the last couple of years, though, however, is that as organizations have addressed backups, and as they've gotten better at recovery from these type of events, ransomware groups more and more are focused on the extortion side of the house. So either stealing information and demanding a ransom for it, targeting supply chain and telling suppliers, hey, if you don't have this organization pay the ransom, that we're going to release information that you may have shared with them, going after family members of some of these executives at organizations and telling the family members that if you don't pay, there's a physical risk to you. We've seen that. This is just an extension of that. I was not part of an investigation into this matter, 
I've not been involved in any sort of negotiations with this threat actor group related to this. I wouldn't be surprised, however, if the threat group, as part of their discussions with the client, had said, look, if you don't pay this, we know there's a new SEC requirement that you are obligated to comply with, and we are going to report this to the SEC ourselves to put additional pressure on you. So I just see it as an extension of what they were already attempting to do. At the end of the day, they're looking for a payday and they're looking to get paid and they are going to leverage whatever they can in order to put pressure on the organization to make a payment to them. Sean, before we go, I just wanted to mention that you did just join Kivu very recently, so I'm glad to have you on this podcast. Maybe tell us a little bit about your background and how it's been uh, early days at Kivu since you just joined. So I'm five days in. I'm really still learning the team. I'm learning the culture. I'm focused on helping Kivu build out the advisory services group. So we've talked about penetration testing. We've talked about different types of assessments. That's really my area of focus. I've been in security now. So I was security now for about 25 years. So almost the majority of my life at this point, I've been in cybersecurity. I'm always going to be thankful for my early days with the Air Force for giving me the opportunity to get into cybersecurity. And the reality is we help a lot of organizations get better. And that's, I think, the thing that's most impactful for me is seeing an organization transform and come out of an event or or even prevent an event from occurring. Sean, I really appreciate you joining me today, and I look forward to speaking with you again in the future. Thank you so much. For Cybercrime Radio, I'm Paul John Spaulding, GM of production at Cybercrime Magazine. Joining me today was Sean Fleury, Vice President of Cyber Risk Management Services at Kivu, which offers strategic guidance and fully managed 24 by 7 cybersecurity threat monitoring. Learn more about our sponsor at kivuconsulting.com. And to follow all of our media, go to cybercrimemagazine.com.